Bonjour. Hi, it is time for the Hillsdale Dialogue. I'm Hugh Hewitt. This is the last radio hour of the week. And during it, I always talk to Dr. Larry Arn or one of his colleagues or both about a matter of great importance and long enduring significance. And today is no different. We've been studying how the baton of the West got passed from the beginning, from Moses to the present. And today, serendipitously, given the events of the past two weeks, and this is originally recorded on June 5th, 2020, Dr. Arne is joined by Dr. Thomas West, who is the Paul Ermine Potter and Don Tibbetts Potter Endowed Professor in Politics at Hillsdale. And I mean, we brought out the big guns with Dr. Arne and Dr. West today. Good morning, gentlemen. Welcome. How are things in Hillsdale, Dr. Arne? Uh, well, we, we have rumors of protest today. And uh, in in uh, Coldwater, Michigan, which, as you know, is a hotbed of cosmopolitan racial politics, all of 25,000 people, uh, there's some protest scheduled for today. And we had people on campus who looked a little odd taking pictures of our statues. And so we're turning out to defend them this morning. Well, I hope you were successful in that. <laughs> Dr. West, uh, welcome. It's good to have you back. Uh, good morning, I'm wondering... You. If you think it's an auspicious time to be talking about Socrates, because we have so many generals attempting to do political theory in the last week. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, the thing about Socrates that he's famous for is the spirit of skepticism. And boy, do we need that now with regard to both the virus and the, and the racial uh, craziness going on. Uh, and Dr. Arn, I, I want to begin. This is so relevant. Socrates is so relevant to this point. He was a warrior philosopher. And we have had in the last few days men for whom my admiration is actually almost unlimited uh, by General Allen and General Mattis and General Kelly. Uh, General Kelly made the supreme sacrifice on behalf of the country. His son was killed in combat. And General Mattis is a warrior. But it appears to me, and I'm talking to a major general in the Marine Corps retired about this, that they are not steeped in the Constitution, and I am disappointed by that. Well, it's, um, you know, these are very terrible times and very dangerous times for just that reason. You, uh, uh, we, we, first we have the law enforcement agencies, and now we have senior people in the military, and they have opinions of their own about how politics ought to be organized, and those are the guys who have force to use. So that's, you know... One step toward banana republic right there. But I, I, I just think it, it's the charges leveled that we are in some way close to having Donald Trump make moves in an authoritarian fashion. It's unsupported by any evidence whatsoever. Dr. West, do you agree or disagree with that? And please, of course, if you think I'm nuts, tell me I'm nuts. Well, uh, that may be a question for somebody else to answer. <laughs> I'll say no. Uh, you're completely you're right about there's no evidence. And and. Uh, that, that, that's when I read a summary today. I don't watch the news. I don't watch TV. I read a summary this morning of what they've been saying, and I think what there is what evidence for any of this. I follow the news on the internet, like you know, in places that are real sources, and not no, it's not happening what they're claiming. And it is indeed. I want to echo uh, Larry. It's a dangerous thing when you have generals basically saying, uh, I uh, think fundamentally that. Our commander-in-chief does not deserve to be obeyed. Now, That's essentially what he was saying, by saying he is uh, threatening the integrity of our republic. I want to be specific, because so often critiques are not. General John Allen, distinguished commander of, of American troops, a Marine, 
Uh, and now the president of the Brookings Institution published yesterday or two days ago an op-ed that reads, A Moment of National Shame and Peril and Hope, the first paragraph of which reads, The slide of the United States into illiberalism may well have begun on June 1, 2020, referencing President Trump's speech and walk to the church. Remember that date. It may well signal the beginning of the end of the American experiment. I put down my pen and I said, I have never seen overstatement on that magnitude from a person of such a distinguished career. Dr. Arndt. Well, I, you know, first of all, um, just put some things together. I mean, remember all of these claims, you know, that we're a deeply racist country, that uh, these protesters, when they loot and pillage, are uh, expressing a legitimate grievance, um, that, that, you know, uh, Heather McDonald has a great book and a great article in the Wall Street Journal about police brutality and, and uh, especially toward minorities, and there's no evidence for it. On the contrary, uh, a police officer is much more likely to be killed by a member of a racial minority than he is to kill one. Um, and so there's a lot of food. So first of all, that's a point of dispute, right? And then a next point of a dispute is, is this embedded everywhere in America? You know, we have elected a black man president of the United States. And uh, so 52%, I think, he got into the second election of the American people thought that was okay. So so the point is, this, this, this thing that happened in, in Minnesota, the man has been, the, the policeman and the others, but the policeman has been charged with murder. And that's the strongest charge the state can make against a person. And he, one praise, will get a trial where the evidence will be looked at, and then 12 impartial citizens will decide if he committed murder. And if he did commit murder, he's going to spend the rest of his life in jail. That's as much as we do. I mean, I don't think Minnesota is a death penalty state. But let me let me enlarge on something you said. I want to correct it because Media Matters emo over there listens to everything. You said 52 percent of that of the people were uh, OK with President Obama being elected. I think you might have better said 52 percent of the people were happy and 99 percent of the people were ha- were OK with a man of, of color being president. They might not like his politics. They didn't like his politics, but I actually kind of thought, well, at least at least the American people have demonstrated to the world that race does not matter in politics anymore. And that, that, that was an upside in that. So 99.9% of America was saying race doesn't matter, even though 48% of us were disappointed with the result. That's right. And, and you know, and, and my point, I was making a specific point, is he, he got more votes than a white man. Yes. So, 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 and that that wasn't, you know, race was in the background of that election. But I don't think, I don't know, but I don't think that most of the people who voted for Barack Obama voted for him because he was black. And I don't think most of the people who voted against him voted against him because he was black. Not only mass, I, I think an overwhelming majority in both cases. Dr. West, I want, I want to transition us to... Socrates, because I think this is one of those Hillsdale dialogues which will strike most program directors as, what are they doing talking about Socrates, when in fact, he's exactly the right guy to look at, at exactly this moment. Do, do you have an opinion on why with some biography for the Steelers fans out there? The, we, well, Socrates uh, famously um, raised questions. I, I, uh, the one, you know, when he was put on trial by the Athenian government, he was put on trial for uh, not believing in the gods of the city and for corrupting the young. 
Uh, they didn't like what he taught young people, and they didn't like what they believed to be his religious opinions because they were heterodox. And and Socrates, his answer to all those that was basically, well, yeah, the reason they're mad at me is because I do raise questions about the established opinions that are floating about, and and I I I make people upset because especially the ones who think they're smart. People, smart people, they're the ones who get maddest at me because I'm able to show them through their own words that they don't even agree with the things they say they think are, is true. And that is, just a, a, that is the basis of what philosophy is. That's the basis, in a way, of all of Western civilization insofar as it depends on the spirit of true science, genuine science, not people claiming to be scientists because they happen to have a white coat and a Ph.D. or an M.D., now, That's I, what we need right now. We need skepticism. We need examination of claims. We need willingness to question narratives, question authority uh, of the kind, the kind of authorities that are being imposed upon us now from the top down through our through the megaphone, the media. Now, I want to I want to add he was also this will come as a shock to many people. Socrates was a real person. He was a warrior before he was a philosopher. He actually played a critical role in the Peloponnesian War, and then he went on to do his philosophy or perhaps intermingled with it. When we come back, I'm going to ask Dr. Arne whether or not another warrior-turned-politician, Tom Cotton, hasn't done more damage to the New York Times in one day than I have in 30 years of raising questions about it, uh, and how that it compares with what Socrates did to the Athenian authorities, because... Uh, what Cotton did in the New York Times yesterday is just amusing as hell. And I just want you to understand it in the context of political theory. Dr. Thomas West, Dr. Larry Arnold are my guests on this Friday edition of the Hillsdale Dialogue, Socrates and the Moment. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. Hugh Hewitt, the last radio hour of the week is underway. My guests are Dr. Larry Arnold, president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale, including some magnificent video courses for those of you who are shut in. And Dr. Thomas West, who is a professor of politics at the college, are my guest today. We're talking about Socrates because of the major figures of the West. Here is a major figure born in Athens. He lived from 470 to 399 B.C. He, he is a real person about whom we know a lot. And why is that, Dr. West? Why do we know so much about Socrates? Well, he's, he's, so, he's so idiosyncratic. I mean, he's, he never wrote anything, for one thing. And yet was immensely influential on a lot of the smartest people of his time. He, and, and of course, in our, all the way down to the present, uh, he incredibly ugly. People used to, he was famous for how ugly he was. Uh, and at the same time, had this gift of having these young people almost fall in love with him. I mean, I don't mean, it wasn't, it, had, it wasn't sexual, but he just had this amazing attractiveness to young to a certain type of young person, and they'd follow him around, and and that was, you know, a strange power. And yet, uh, all that except for that time he spent in the war. You mentioned that earlier, but he he was not himself a particularly uh, political man either. Never paid much attention to politics, except he used to tell everybody, "Well, I'm the most important statesman in Athens. I'm the only one who knows what's going on." He'd you know do that to to rile people up and get them thinking. Um, but he, yeah, it, and, and, you know, think, you know, think about a guy who had for his top students, people like Plato, people like 
uh, Xenophon, people like Alcibiades, who's the most uh, one of the most colorful and am- amazing politicians in all of history. Oh, the the, the novel <laughs> Tides of War by uh, Stephen Pressfield is about Alcibiades, and and I I've always thought I didn't know much about him from the Peloponnesian Wars. He is the most colorful general. I mean, just flat out. I mean, you don't really want to trust him with your family fortune, but he thought he thought Socrates was a man of unique courage. Did he not? Well, he had Socrates was a kind of a kind of courage of stubbornness, like tough. He just you know he just wasn't going to allow himself to be moved, to be pushed. Uh, he, he didn't. Socrates was not the kind of uh, didn't have the kind of courage that was leadership type courage. You know, go charging into battle. He'd do what he had to do. That's it. Uh, but you know, his students, Plato and Xenophon, they were much more interested in politics and in actually uh, ruling than Socrates was. And that's part of why we know about Socrates. His students had a much more political orientation than he than he did. Socrates did. Like I say, he was mostly just the guy who kept raising all these questions, uh, annoying the people in authority and the elites, and attracting young people who were really smart and really ambitious. Now, Doctor, and anyone who studied under Harry Jaffa, as you did, uh, will have spent a lot of time thinking about Socrates, because they will have spent a lot of time reading Plato. Uh, what is his figure in your mind? Well, he, uh, I think, well, first of all, we should get Tom before we finish to characterize what Socrates had to teach, uh, and the reason is uh, he knows so much about it, uh, also the American Revolution. But, um, but what I think is, first of all, uh, Socrates is, he, I think of him as a fierce individual. That is to say, stubborn, Tom's word was, he couldn't be moved, and he was relentless. And, and that meant that if you got in a conversation with him, he, he, he would just search your soul, and always, by the way, pleasantly and mostly by asking questions. But it, and so the, these, these dialogues are, you know, they're, they're treasures, right? Plato was one of the greatest thinkers ever, and Socrates didn't write anything, so we only know about him from his students and from Aristophanes, a contemporary playwright. So, yeah, and, you know, Socrates is sort of, in, his, in those discussions, is the birth of the idea of philosophy finding things that are true outside any claims of man. Uh, how's that, Tom? Yeah, that's, that's right, yeah. Well, when we come back, I'm going to ask Dr. West to characterize what it was that Socrates had to teach. That does seem to be the essential question. But remember... He's a real human being with a real history that we know and real conversations that are recorded with real importance for this moment, as we will explain after the break. Stay tuned. 33 minutes after the hour, America, it's the Hillsdale Dialogue. This week with Dr. Larry Arnn, president of Hillsdale College, and his colleague, Dr. Thomas West, a professor of politics there. We are focused on Socrates in our ongoing series of People who lived a long time ago who mean a lot to this very day. And Dr. West, I, I want to go to the question that Larry Arn put on the table before the break. Would you characterize what it was that Socrates had to teach? And I would add, and why we need to know that today. Well, I, I think what uh, the most important thing he did, and especially from our point of view here talking in our conversation, he was basically the founder of political science. He was the guy who... Uh, 
first got scientists to pay attention to the world of politics. Because before Socrates, there were all kinds of scientists, competent ones in Greece, but they tended to be uh, what we today would call natural scientists, physicists, chemists, people like that. And, and Socrates said, look, politics, too, can be analyzed and also can be understood uh, rationally. And that was a shocking thought to people that before that. The idea is let's try to find a way to understand what's right, what, what's the right way of life for a human being, using the, the techniques that we would use also in trying to understand the nature of things in general. And he did that through conversation. That was his key transformation of, politics, of science. He turned the scientist's attention away from simply looking at things, just, just observing, which is important, but also conversations about the things you're looking at. And that means op opinions that people have about justice, about uh, temperance, about whatever it is that people think of as right and good. And, and he did that and, and kicked off then uh, the whole tradition of trying to, trying to be able to say what is the best regime, what is the right way of life for a human being, and has helped, I think, to shape Western uh, politics in a good way, you know, helping people to think through clearly uh, what is the right constitutional order and political regime to follow. So if I can take from that and ask Dr. Arn, is Dr. West saying that conversation itself is a Socratic ideal? That is something we do not see much of, even on places that are supposed to be devoted to conversation, television news, and we certainly don't see it in demonstrations. Is conversation, the dialectic, actually the essential Socratic example for the moment? Well, if, if you remember what Tom just said, so first of all, remember, if you're, if you're studying, you know, atoms and the void, which is sort of what physicists were talking about before Socrates, uh, that's one thing, and it's a very interesting thing, but if you start applying tools of reason and conversation to questions of politics, we're talking about how we live now. And that means that can be violent. Now, Socrates was killed for it. And it, it shouldn't be. But, but Socrates himself was not violent. Socrates, he believed, and, you know, he had this very great student, Plato, and Xenophon, too, for that matter. Um, he believed that you can talk things through. And that's how you get to, uh, to, to knowing things, to refining your knowledge of things. And Socrates is most famous for saying, I know that I know nothing. But in the apology, that is to say, his pleading before the jury that condemned him to death, he, he makes an emphatic point that he does know some things. And those things have to do with living right, of, with the good of honor, with with the with the 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 good the good of the virtues, and that's a very emphatic thing, right? And that means that he's he he calls himself a gadfly. Tom West himself, by the way, is kind of like a gadfly. Yeah. Uh, he he uh, and you, Hugh, by the way, are the most Socratic talk show host. Uh, I wouldn't say you're Socratic, but the most Socratic. I've already got it on tape. <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh, but you know you in other words. If you, if, you, if you do that in a civil way, if you raise questions about things and get people to think them through, then that's the road up, right? We were talking in the break about this very disturbing thing that's going on, that opinions are being excluded par partly by these big tech companies. 
And they're just things that it's not permissible to say anymore. And, you know, at, at Hillsdale, we understand the need for civility because you can't, you know, if you're not civil with each other, you'll soon be poking each other with your fist. But on the other hand, you should be able to explore things. You should be able to opine. You should be able to speculate. You should be able to disagree. And, and, uh, and Socrates, you know, and, and you, know, at the, you know, his sort of death pronouncement, he, he speaks in the apology in the name of his military service, which he says was sufficient, right? He was brave. He didn't call himself brave, but he says in the name of that, that same thing I will apply to my asking questions and seeking the truth. And that, that makes him a heroic figure. Uh, it does. There's, there's it a does. big strain in the literature that Socrates is the replacement for Achilles, is the great Greek hero. And he had a bravery of his own, did Socrates. Uh, Dr. West, do you have any idea what the term to be dragged means? To be what? Sorry. Dragged. Online. Do you know what it means? No. I didn't think you did, and I'm reassured that you don't. It means to attract the mob online by saying something that is considered out of bounds, as Dr. Arn just mentioned. And you will attract thousands or tens of thousands of people will, quote, drag you online. And it's a term of art now about the online world. Socrates was actually the first person to get dragged. That which he said ended up dragging him to his death by virtue of his stubbornness. What was he trying to get done that got so many people upset? Well, this is this is the thing uh, that uh, we're facing right now is people keep saying, I love science. I love science as they uh, engage in the kind of uh, mob activity you're talking about, which is the exact opposite of the spirit of science. Science, as, and then Socrates was in the sense a scientist uh, in the older sense, you know, wanting to know the nature of things. Science means asking questions about whatever is out there, whatever is claimed. You brought up earlier Socrates' famous image of people, uh, people are prisoners in a cave watching shadows on the wall projected from behind them by people that they don't even see and that they believe those shadows to be the truth. Of course, that's true in all time. It's not just in our t- any time. It's just not just it's our all time. And and what Socrates did then, and what a Socratic individual does now, is to raise doubts about all the, about the narrative, what they call the narrative. That's the shadows. To raise doubts about it, to ask questions about it, to try to understand what in the narrative is true, and what in it is misleading. So that there's an approach to actual truth as opposed to simply buying into this or that way of looking at the world. That's what we need right now uh, in spades, whether it comes, whether it's in terms of race, the virus, uh, Trump, you name it. Every, it's very hard for people to take an objective view, a scientific view, in the older sense of science. Uh, you know, it's gonna, it's gonna pain me. It's gonna pay me to say this, but I have to compliment Dr. Arn. Uh, because he brought, along with uh, Dr. Spaulding, onto the Hillsdale team in Washington, the most courageous person to battle the narrative I know is Molly Hemingway. She is relentless in calling out the shadows as the narrative and as false. 
and she pays a price for it, but she does it every single day, Larry Arn. Yeah. And, and that gets you in trouble. The narrative doesn't like that. Yeah, you remind me something about her. We, you know, we, it, we, we really don't hire anybody around here unless we think they can teach, you know, even if their job is not teaching, because uh, everything we do is teaching, right? Well, I, I, the idea came to me to hire her, Doug Jeffrey, too, a colleague of mine, and, and Tom West, a student of Tom's, um, because I just noticed what a moral exemplar she is. She's careful. She, her, her articles are always reasonable. They, they often reach unpopular conclusions, and she, they do it fearlessly, but also methodically. She keeps control of herself. And, you know, that's, that's Socrates. He, 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 he must have been, I mean, the young loved him. He was maybe the greatest teacher in history, I guess. But, uh, but he was incredibly frustrating to people. You know, at one point, he's always arguing with these sophists who claim that they, you know, they're going to, uh, 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 well, my, my reading of the sophists is that in the end they reduce things to just questions of power. And they teach the young to become powerful in speech. Well, in, in the Republic, Thersimachus, uh, one of the most important of them, they encounter, Socrates encounters him in book one, and he makes him so mad that uh, the text says he rises up like a wild beast. He's just furious. And then, on the other hand, Socrates is good-humored and calm and self-effacing and incredibly frustrating. Tom, Tom West, why does Socrates upset? I, 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 it's the same question. Is it the fact that he knows something that other people don't know and they are jealous of it? Or is it that, that which he says that drives them to frenzy? What he, no, the thing that most is so irritating about Socrates or anybody who has that talent is that he'll take, your, he'll take some statement you make and then he'll say, but do you really think that? And he'll ask you a question about something related to it. And, you, and the person he's talking to will say, well, no, I don't believe that. And then it will turn out the thing that he doesn't believe contradicts the thing he just said he did believe. Huh. And so that's what's so frustrating is that your vanity is, is basically being knocked down and punished. There, there you go. Th that's it. I think it's a question of vanity. I've always thought that, but I'm, you know, I wouldn't dare raise my hand with Harvey Mansfield in the front of the room. But I've always thought it's about pride. And people don't like to be thought stupid. Am I close, Thomas West? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's human nature. What do you think? Sure. Uh, yeah, one of, our, one of our teachers, Harry Newman, uh, Tom said good words about Nietzsche, and I agree with him about that. And a great teacher of Nietzsche was uh, Harry Newman. Tom, I've just, by the way, recovered some tapes of Newman classes, some of which I'm sitting in. Uh, but uh, he would always begin the class by saying that pride is not an intellectual virtue. And that means speak up, even if you're a fool. And oh, interesting. Huh. Well, we're getting a lot of that this weekend. Don't go, any, don't go anywhere, America. I'm going to be right back for the last segment. We don't have enough time to talk about Socrates, except how do you go about studying him? I want to make sure we get Dr. West to instruct us all. If you're intrigued, how do you go about doing that? Don't go anywhere. The Hillsdale Dialogue returns, except to hillsdale.edu. Sign up there for Imprimus, the absolutely free speech digest that arrives old-fashioned in your mailbox every month. 
That's at hillsdale.edu. I'll be right back with Dr. Weston, Dr. Orrin after this. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. All Hillsdale Dialogues are available at Hugh for Hillsdale.com. And amazing resources on Socrates and everyone else in the Western canon available at hillsdale.edu. Dr. West, as we round into the end of this, just brief introduction to Socrates. Why did he care so much about Athens? This is really a larger way of asking. Why doesn't even why does he even bother to teach? What, what is he what is he doing? Well, that's the thing. Yeah, uh, he, he, the, the thing about philosophy or science is it it doesn't it, it doesn't in theory seem to be caring about anybody. It's just like figuring out reality is its goal and everything else subordinated to that. And so, it's hard to understand why would a scientist care about his own country? Uh, if the country itself is living in a delusion in a cave, and you know, su- subjected to the narrative, and and Socrates ex- says something about that in that defense speech he gave when he was on trial for his life, he said, "Look, you're closer to me in in kinship. In I'm related to you. Uh, you know, there's there's a love of one's own that's a real human thing, and it, and nobody's free of that, and nobody should be free of that. That's that's a right and a good thing." But it's also true, he cared about his city, he cared about the people in it, because his way of life could be perpetuated through that to some degree. That's what he learned with the, with his students. I mean, they were Athenians. And, you know, there's, there's something to be carried on in the tradition of philosophy that uh, Plato did, Aristotle, they established schools there. Athens became the, the place that was friendly to science, friendliest to science in the whole ancient world for a long time. And out, out, and why? Partly because of that. He, Socrates established that tradition of, of a friendship between the, the scientist philosophers and the, the, and, the, and the Athenians, or in other words, in political life when it's well, when it's well done. Now, Larry Aaron, I, I think that the reason Hillsdale has skyrocketed in popularity among the young is that the young really want to do this. They don't perhaps can articulate why they want to do this, but they really do want to do this. Yeah. Well, the young are, you know, today what they're told is, they're told two things in combination that are really bad for them. One is, there isn't anything objective to know. And the other is, you should get busy doing all the things that are projected on the screen by the people at the back of the cave. Uh, And so... Kids grow up that way today, right? And they and they're, they're, they they it makes them shallow. Social media helps to do that. Well, if you get a bunch of kids, and they come, they 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 soon understand that the greatest compliment is been to being paid to them. They're going to have to work their tails off, worse than anywhere on earth, I fancy and hope. And yet, it'll be so good for them, right? And they will form friendships with each other through that labor, that. You know, cuts across disciplines and and uh, and you know. So, in other words, it's it, it, it appeals to their ambitions in the highest way. And you know, because in the end, the highest ambition has got to be, I want to be a fine human being, and I need to know what that is. And and you know, I, I will say, Socrates proclaiming his ignorance—that's the thing of which he's not ignorant. And and uh, and that's why those young loved him. They saw that they were walking a hard road, but the road was going up. And they Dr. Like- we- 
Doctor, where would someone who is intrigued by this begin? Yeah, I, well, I just want to add to Larry's comment that um, the spirit of friendship, of genuine friendship, that's essential to the Socrates' message, not so, not so much in word but deed. He kind of provides a model of friends examining things together, trying to understand what, what the truth is. And here at Hillsdale College, I mean, during the shutdown, that was one of the saddest things to see is how disappointed and how frustrated the students were to lose their friendships, to suddenly be sent home and told you're not allowed to come back for, month, for the rest of the semester. Um, so that was a tough, that was, a, that was an ex- interesting thing, the very Socratic um, but it's also, but yeah, you want to. You're asking where where do you go to learn? Where do you start? I, I, I would start with uh, a best-selling translation uh, done by me and my former wife, my wife, who's now passed on. But uh, called Four Texts on Socrates, contains four dialogues, relatively short: uh, Apology, uh, Apology, Crito, Euthyphro, and Aristophanes' play, The Clouds, which also gives you an angle on Socrates you wouldn't expect. Uh, much more skeptical, of course. And you, you, know, you can think about what kind of a man he was, what kind of ideas he had from those four sources, uh, the three dialogues of Plato and the Aristophanes. I, to me, that's, that's a great way to think about, begin to think about this. Uh, it's not real long. You're not going to have to give up uh, you know, months of your life. But, uh, you know, and, and you can see the, the thinking, the, kind of the model of thinking, the model of conversation that we've been talking about. You can see it at work in those that places. Is, that is a superb suggestion. It's not in my notes, but I wrote it down. Four texts on Socrates by the Wests. Thomas West, I don't know your wife's first name. Right, uh, yes, right, right. Uh, and so start with four texts on Socrates. Dr. Larry Arn, Dr. Thomas West, thank you both for joining us today, and we will be back next week, America. A peaceful, safe, prosperous, free market-oriented, freedom-loving weekend to you all. I'll talk to you on Monday on the next Hugh Hewitt Show.